Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In the four and a bit years I've done this podcast, I've done 63 episodes out of the 280-odd in total about the topic of grief. I've interviewed mothers who've lost sons to suicide, sisters who've lost brothers, and children who've lost parents. In this episode, I'm interviewing a man who lost one of his children so unexpectedly and suddenly, seemingly for no clear, explainable reason, that it turned his world upside down. Not only this, but shortly after he lost one of his sons, two weeks later, his father and his children's grandparent died as well, giving him two unimaginable heartbreaks in a short space of time. Remarkably, he turned his grief into a book which we are going to talk about today. Liam Walsh is a writer and a massive Swindon Town fan. He wrote a book called Red Balloons, A Father, A Son, A Memoir, which talked about losing his 15-year-old son Patrick in January 2020. Patrick had gone to a football game to watch Tottenham Hotspur, Liam and his second team play, and he collapsed suddenly and died on the streets of West London, held in his arms by his brother Ewan. In this episode, we discuss the grief of losing his son and his father in quick succession, the bond they all formed through following Swindon Town, Tottenham, and also Gaelic hurling. We talk about the power of community and the people who supported Liam and his family in their time of need, and how the book provided Liam with a cathartic tool to help him through it and support his wife, Kate, too. This episode is a special one for me, not just because of my bond with my own dad, following Huddersfield Town together for 25 years, but also because I lost a close work colleague, Matt, over five years ago to a similar issue that Patrick suffered which I spoke about in a previous podcast episode called My Mate Matt. After you've listened to this episode, call your dad or your son, if you have one, and make the most of the time you have with your loved ones, because you truly never know when your last moment with them will be. So this is how my conversation with Liam Walsh went. Liam, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you, mate. I came across your phenomenal book through friend of the pod, David Hartrick, and I then 100% knew I had to get you on. Unfortunately, I read the book before I knew I'd be able to get you on, as you're a pretty elusive character to pin down. But how are you, mate, and how's the book being received? I'm good. Thanks, Freddie. Good morning. This morning finds me, actually, uh, you might see, I'm, I'm just back from Park Run. So if I'm if I'm looking a bit, uh, a bit fresh, a bit windswept, then I think that might explain some of that. So I've had my... Had my morning exercise out in the in the Saturday sunshine today. 
thanks for inviting me. Uh, the book's been received really well, really positively, published through a small publisher, Halcyon Publishing, and they've been really pleased so far. So touch wood, yeah, it's uh, it's out there and, uh, and doing pretty well. Thank you. You'll be pleased to know that this is audio only, so the listeners won't be able to no, see your okay. windswept face. So that, don't worry no, about they'll that. They'll be thankful for that anyway. <laughs> We've got loads to talk about, and I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful to you for allowing me to go as deep as we will during this podcast, mate. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Let's go. Because of the book, mate, this podcast is going to be very straightforward. So we're just going to talk about your own mental health journey through the lens of the book. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Liam we meet here? Um, quite straightforward, really, Freddie, in terms of my mental health journey to date in the, in, until the events of the last three years. Pretty straightforward and thankfully, in that sense, no huge issues for me. I was born and lived and have lived in my hometown of Whitney, West Oxfordshire, all my life, give or take uh, one or two years out as a student. Born an only child, remained very close to my parents all the way through. And yeah, I think my surroundings have been fairly straightforward and not not an awful lot to record either in terms of life events in that sense or mental health issues that go with it. Married my wife, Kate, and we raised three lovely children. So yeah, quite a simple introduction from me, Freddie. Before we dive really deep into the book, mate, the start of it is very poignant as well because you put a story of a old university friend called Nick who was shot dead whilst traveling in Brazil why did you decide to place his story at the start and how did the shock of his death affect your mental health at the time I think at the time we just finished our student years mental health was less of a public or discussed uh, situation so we as students we, we had finished and we probably scattered and gone off in different directions so so actually once past the initial shock, you know, Nick wasn't somebody that I would have been in contact with perhaps every day. We didn't have social media to do those sorts of things. So, so to be honest, I probably wasn't alone in just getting on with you know the emerging adulthood that came and not really discussing it. And and friends, we drifted apart, so we didn't get together. We didn't talk about Nick. So it you know, it feels pretty sad to say, but it wasn't something that actually impacted me hugely at the time until the death of my own son, Patrick, many years later, I did begin to think back and, and remember Nick and think, goodness, you know, not only did we as friends not really mark Nick's passing and, and, and talk about his life and how it impacted us, in particular, I felt that I never got in touch with his parents. So whilst I thought about Nick fairly frequently, and I, I continue to do so 30 years later, and mark, you know, mark his life and his impact on me in, in different ways, I never shared that with his parents. And once, once I'd lost my own son, that loneliness, if you like, of people not being in touch and the desperation, if you like, for him to be remembered is really quite acute. So long-winded answer to come back to the first part of that as to why it's at the front of the book is because, if anything, I felt, um, I felt a little bit guilty, Freddie, that, that I hadn't been in touch and I hadn't supported his parents and his, his, his family and his perhaps his more immediate friends better than I, than I had at the time and through those years since. So... So it's my way of saying, Nick, it's 30 years, but I've not forgotten you. I want to set the scene for listeners, because like you said, you have raised three children, met your wife. So tell me first how you met your wife, Kate, your relationship and what made you fall in love with her. And then the challenges and the highs and lows of bringing three children into the world. 
uh, we met as, as students at Leicester University. Maybe the, the, the immediate details are lost to the, to the fog of time. It's probably the, the easiest, uh, easiest answer on that bit. And we've been together ever since. That led to eventually relocating to my hometown, which was probably more accident than design, but it's just the way that things pan out with work and such forth. And yeah, and the children came eventually. So Neve in 97, Ewan in 99, and then Patrick in 2004. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, really, it's been you know, not too much other drama to report other than a, a you know a fairly a fairly sort of straightforward family family upbringing and, and that continued with with Kate yeah. myself and the three children the entire book weaves the highs and lows of Swindon Town FC almost alongside the mental health difficulties you go through Liam and sometimes it's your way of distracting yourself from a period of sadness sometimes it's the reason you are sad I can attest to that as Absolutely, hard as yeah. just tell me about your relationship with the club and how you became a fan first of all I became a fan through my dad taking me when I was four years old and it's something I've never been able to shake off so uh three quarters of an hour down the road and not on the doorstep so it's forever a, a little bit of a journey to get there but yeah I, I remember my time as a four five six year old and both the excitement of going and what felt absolutely quite vast and the crowds and everything that went with it really at, at the time we would sit at the top of a rickety old stand and there was some quite terrifying metal steps to get up to which I'm not sure would pass the health and safety requirements of the modern day but I think it is. They probably engendered a lifelong fear of heights in me, anyway, as, uh, <laughs> as I'd be dragged up, uh, dragged up to the top of there. But once in, once in, I was happy as, and it's something, that, as you said, I've never quite shook off. When I was young, going to watch my team, Huddersfield, was an escape from school. It was escape from bullying and all, all sorts of other things. And and as an adult, it's a way for me to spend quality time with my dad. So how did it become a tool for you and your sons and your daughter to spend quality time together? Were they even aware that you were kind of doing it largely for that? <laughs> uh, probably not as tiny kids, but as, as they got older, I'm sure they did. And at a time, my daughter was the eldest, and so she came She came first. She wasn't particularly interested, and she did say many years later that it was quite nice for her to go to an evening match, for example, because she could get to stay out late or... <laughs> yeah, it was it was a bit of father daughter time so I think she did you know she did enjoy that and she's well she's not been to a game for many years and who knows whether she will again but I think she knows what it's about and she understands on that basis for sure and with the boys it was slightly separate because they didn't have the reason to or find another reason to, to do something better with Saturday afternoons and they again they stuck with it and for me it was a sort of rite of passage when when they both became teenagers and and they'd go off on one or two away game adventures of their own without me and yeah maybe I started to feel a little bit jealous but equally it's the past and time and the way that we all grow up isn't it is that sometimes you have to learn when to let go and when to let them uh, do their own thing too so yeah I was absolutely chuffed and thrilled that they were able to do that yeah as a dad you feel a little bit you know what about me what about me <laughs> and what are some of your favorite memories of Swindon Town games that you spent with you and Neve and especially Patrick I think with Neve, not too many other than I think, <laughs> I think it was her last game, to be honest. It was it was the last game of the season. We were playing at home to the Millwall and all the excitement that goes with a visit from, from Millwall. There were a lot of police around and police horses. She'd already developed a very early passion for, for all things horse. And she did say before the game, she tucked up my arm and said, Dad, 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 do you think after the game they'll let the horses have a run around and do some show jumping on the pitch? Only if there's some violence. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's, that's probably not going to happen. Probably not going to happen. But I could just feel her excitement and anticipation of 
Oh, well, you could let these horses... You know, look at that field. Those horses could have a... Uh, what a time they could have. What a time they could have. But they didn't, and she didn't come back. So so that was probably Neve's journey uh, in, a, in a nutshell, to be honest. With the boys, a lot of mediocre times watching Swindon. But the best, to be honest, I think was the, the last season that we had with Patrick. And it was, what, it was the one that was curtailed by COVID. So the nineteen twenty season, when the club had had a lot of issues previously... We were on the up. We had a good team. And that important thing, you know, you'll recognise from your own journeys with Huddersfield, that we had a really good connection between the fans and the players. It felt that we were as one. We had some fantastic away days. Uh, Exeter, Orient in particular. My local team, Orient. If it wasn't for my dad, I'd be an Orient fan. <laughs> oh, for sure. Great, great club. Great club. Yeah. Cheltenham, Forest Green, Salford in particular was a great day out we had. So we did get a lot of memories that year, as well as the as well as the home games that we we had a decent record on record in. It was it was some of the away games. I think that year were really really special, and, and I won't forget. And now that I've written about them, there's there's no chance of forgetting. So I'm glad that uh, we're able to share that. The book's chapters are very chronological, Liam. So we've come to the point now where we discuss your son Patrick's death. So if you can, just take me back to that Tuesday night and the events that transpired. As a what should have been a great evening of your boys watching football at Tottenham in London, but tragically, one of them didn't come home. Yeah, so as I said, part of them growing up is also known when to let go. So the boys had gone off to Tottenham and I was jealous that they'd gone, but uh, equally excited to to understand how how their evening was going to go. It was in the middle of a storm, Brendan, so a January storm at the time, which was particularly savage. And and I think I remember being worried about whether they'd got the right coats on or not and whether they'd be warm enough, those sorts of things. It was a game on telly, so I'd watched it on telly after after getting back from work, and I was quite relieved to get back from work, having sort of survived the storm. Pretty mundane game, sending texts to the boys as this is where they sat and they're enjoying, you know, enjoying their evening. And then, as I was due to be picking them up from the station, uh, midnight, just checking that they're back into central London and back at the train station. I, okay, that was the point that things went wrong and their location didn't move on. Find my friends. And, and I thought, you know, as again, as as teenage boys, maybe they just found something better to do in central London for a few minutes or what, you know, they paused to see something. And then time went on and, and they missed the trains or checked the train time. I think, you know, what's going on here? They missed the train from Marleybone. They're not far away. I, I can understand it. My wife had gone to bed knowing that they were back in central London and thought they were quite safe. And then she came downstairs and she's got somebody on the line talking to her. I heard the word CPR and, and froze. Uh, without really registering what that meant. And all we knew is that we had to get to the hospital in Paddington as soon as possible. So we threw some clothes on and went out into the storm and headed off down the M40 to the hospital, you know, without any idea really as to what we were driving into. You arrive at the hospital A&E at about half past midnight and you say in the book, quote, literally two minutes ago, I was driving the car along the West Way now we were thrust into a small room, me, Kate, a crumpled Jewan and a serious looking lady about to tell us that our precious Patrick, our youngest child, our brother, our best friend had died. What was that room like? Small, utilitarian, NHS uh, sofas. And I'm, I can't remember too much more around the details other than I think there's probably two two-seater sofas and it's a case of who sits where and how do we, how does this pan out? I can remember... Again, we didn't know what we were walking into. So that was just absolute 
absolute shock really with with the words that we then heard and and the complete disbelief really that you know, I'd kiss Patrick goodbye at half seven in the morning, I guess, and and that was it. Can you tell the listeners how, and you still haven't found out completely why, but how he had died? Because that isn't something that any parent could ever prepare for. Well, there isn't actually an answer. So yeah. so the sort of cutting to the chase really three years on is that despite all the investigations, all the genetics, uh, all the testing that's been done since, Patrick is one of, I think it's 10 children who died in 2020 for which there is no cause of death. So it's one of the charities we support is SUDC, so Sudden Unexplained Death in Children. And uh, that's where you know, Patrick firmly fits in in that category. Many, many children who do die suddenly, so there's not a huge numbers of those, but most do actually get traced back to something, whether that's brain-related mm. or, or heart-related. But in, in Patrick's case, no, literally, literally nothing. And as a father, in that moment, did your mind allow you to grieve or were you on autopilot where these paternal instincts kicked in, where you were just trying to support your wife and your two surviving children? Yeah, I think never, never mind the moment. I think probably the six months, Freddie, yeah. is, is autopilot. And, and certainly mm. it's not grief, it's, it's just it's shock and it's absolute survival mode, both in, in the moment and absolutely for the days, weeks and months to come. And people did say to us quite early on, you won't remember this period or you won't you won't know how you've got through it, but you will. And at the time, everything feels absolutely intense. But looking back three years on, if I'd not written down what I've, what I have written and what you know, Kate's written as well, there were huge blanks, huge blanks over that six months of, I'm not sure quite how we survived and what we did, but, but we managed. I imagine posting on Facebook was one example where you probably don't remember writing it, but it's now there in the memory, so to speak. Yeah, you know the the bit that I do remember with that is that once we did get home, so again, there's nothing to there was nothing to stay in London for, and it also felt there was nothing to go home for, but we did, mm. and and we collapsed on the on the sofa, wasn't really sleep, but just uh, rest, and and then by late morning, clearly Patrick wasn't at school, and we were telling our immediate family and friends, and word was going to get out, so I think we just had to had to be clear what the situation was rather than having questions come the other way and having to answer mm. a lot of questions. I think we just have to share what the news was. Very early on, you realised that Patrick's grief wasn't just your loss and your family's loss. It was also this, in quote in the book, shocking jolt to our beautiful community. How did your Oxfordshire and Swindon Town community help you through that grief, mate? Yeah, good question. And We, we live in a town of... It's thirty thousand people, so it's it's not everyone knows everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not quite everyone knows everyone, but you're not far away. You're not far away. So I think as soon as we've been in contact with the school and started to hear some of the some of the stories of how people have been impacted at school, then we quite quickly understood that it wasn't just our loss; it was a loss for the for the community, without appreciating, I suppose, in quite the same way because of the way that we were feeling was was so again it was just so overpoweringly shocked. So it was, you know, in a sense, there was comfort that it was there, but equally, it didn't make anything better, obviously, because it was still mm. the same, you're still in the same the same place. With Swindon, it was a, it was a little bit different in that, you know, again, we live quite a way out of Swindon, so we were not sort of part of that community in, in itself. We didn't do anything too publicly, sort of sharing that that we all saw. You know, last week we were talking about Orient, the Orient fan who sadly died. Yes, yeah. The absolute outpouring. I won't mention the ref that followed that. <laughs> But we, we didn't do anything like that. So it wasn't really 
until I think two or three months later when I when I wrote something and and it was then it's front page at Swindon Advertiser. But it wasn't until that point that it actually became part of the Swindon community's loss, if that makes sense. Mm. And and then we, we we received fabulous support, which was heartwarming. After you wrote that piece in the Swindon Advertiser, it was then picked up in the Guardian and football fanzine when Saturday comes there was also very touching tributes from the club themselves including their manager Richie Wellens and some of the players was that the start of this legacy you wanted to leave for Patrick so a digital imprint and now this print in echo for people to find yeah you've said that really um, really beautifully there Freddie thank you it's um, I remember being conscious there was a moment where I think we were driving to a game, and I just said, I've, "I've got to write. I've got to write some stuff down. I've got to share it." Which became what went in the in the advertiser, the Swindon advertiser, and then it got picked up and shared more widely. Yeah, that then started something in me that I didn't really know how it was going to continue or what was going to come out a couple of years later, because I probably did spend the next three to six months occasionally writing and sharing bits rather than thinking. Right, page one of a book. What am I going to do? It, there was nothing. There was nothing deliberate about it in that sense. It's more a case of when I felt like I needed to write, I'd write something, and some bits would be shared and some bits wouldn't. And it was, it was a lot further down the line from a process point of view that I actually thought actually I could do something here. So that was a slow, a slow burner in that sense. Another, I guess, autopilot moment was in the weeks after Patrick's death, you decided to go watch Swindon play Newport and you only had tickets because of Patrick. Just tell me about that match and your memories of it. Well, it was it was literally three days later. So it was one that we'd been looking forward to. So I was going to catch up with an old student friend as well. So we'd been, we'd been looking forward to a week or two earlier, Patrick had said, with a limited away allocation he was, he was quite aware of when the tickets went on sale and, and that we had to get them on the day so he, he was sort of badgering me to make sure that that was done and sorted it was quite a, a really strong feeling at the time that that how much the club actually meant to us and how much the sport meant to us and we just felt a, you know an urge to go which we did I think once we got there and it's uh, you know Newport's not the most salubrious ground in the world <laughs> in January. Down at the pill, <laughs> a freezing cold away terrace and and a pretty rancorous uh, atmosphere all round. Mm. It was in an awful game, and we just stood there thinking, "What on earth are we doing?" We didn't leave at half time or anything like that, which I think was probably the urge. We 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 stuck it out, and it seemed an odd thing to do, perhaps. But in a sense, I think we were glad to have actually done it. Also, in another sense, it set a bit of a, a stall of. You know, we're not going to hide ourselves away and spend our time curled up on on the sofas. We're going to get out there and do things which are important to us. And by that time, my dad was also in in the hospital, so it did feel a you know there was a release there as well because mm. yeah, after ten minutes of watching you know an awful League Two game of football, you're seeing, oh, I've been there. <laughs> you're, seeing moaning, you're seeing moaning at the players or shouting at the linesman or something like that, and it's uh, there is there is a degree of not quite normality, but it, of yeah, these are the things that we have to do. We're going to come to your dad in a bit, mate, but I just want to stay on Patrick for now because when someone dies, it isn't just the grief and shock you have to deal with, but it's the admin of it too. And you started going through Patrick's stuff and Neve found one of his old school books where he described himself saying, I would like to be remembered for being funny and kind and changing people for the better, which is pretty apt and it's very, very uh, articulate for such a young man. Is that how you and Kate and your children remember him, Liam? Yes, yeah, that was a bit of a moment. I've got to say, you know, we found that and it's like a, you know, sharp intake of breath and think, oh, you know, he's only written this a couple of months ago. 
what was going through his mind when he thought that and he wrote it and then for us to be able to find it because you can't find and you can't read through everything that somebody's left behind but we found that bit it was an emotional moment but a beautiful moment too and i'm so glad that we did mm. uh, we did find that and, and that did you know that did sum him up really he was the youngest of three and he was the cheeky one in many senses but he was he was a really kind kid as well and he would do anything to help his help his mates out in the book and people can go and read this in full because there were loads of wonderful and beautiful memories and recitals of Patrick and his life at the funeral. You gave the eulogy. Do you feel comfortable discussing any of your, I don't want you to say your favourite, but just any of your highlights of it that really meant a lot to you when you heard them on the day, maybe from his classmates or someone else? Yeah, for me, a highlight was was what we'd been able to create in the meantime. So we, we created effectively a, a, a set of... I think they were eight two boards which told his life story, and there were probably thirty of those which we put up around the um, the Corn Exchange in Whitney, which is a which is a lovely building as well. So it's a, it a memorial service that we had, and it was great to be able to share his his story in that way. For me, being able to choose the running order, so I did speak. I did speak very briefly. It was only a, only a minute or two, but it was being able to go first. We're designing the service. I don't want to be sat there waiting for an hour yeah. and, and being in an absolute wreck. So being able to go first in that in that sense, and then to hear other people speak was just incredible, incredibly emotional, and and they spoke so beautifully, and we're so grateful to those who did it. And then looking out and seeing. There are hundreds of faces out there that I couldn't quite pick out, but seeing people I've not seen for 30 years and travelled and, and all those sorts of things was, again, it was really, really special just to just to see that we were being thought of and cared of in that moment. The most heart... I mean, I cried several times reading the book, but the most heartbreaking moment for me is a section where every few paragraphs you repeat the phrase, I cried. And it reminded me of Reverend Richard Cole's book, The Madness of Grief, where he wrote about losing his husband and this repetition of grief that gets stronger and stronger whilst you get sadder and sadder and into that madness of grief. Was that your most difficult moment, would you say? Um, no, actually. Okay. So so that those words that are in there, uh, I think they are really powerful and really going to resonate with a lot of people. They were Kate's words to describe her part of the journey we're mm. dealing with. She did or say most of the dealing with the administration part of it. That's it was sort of doing it light, of course, but that whole journey that we went through with the coroner's office is what she dealt with. Was it the worst bit? No, because I, I think that anger that you that you described there, mm-hmm. I think anger is, in some senses, is almost a positive emotion. So it's an anger to want to do something a bit differently or to be frustrated or to, to want to change things. So rather than it being a rather than it being something a bit more passive perhaps where you're lacking energy or you you feel that you can't go on those sorts of moments were were probably harder than in a sense when I see a spark of anger in Kate or in myself then that's because I want to you know I want to stick around and I want to I want to see this through and I'm it's an odd thing to say but I think there's a positivity in, in anger sometimes the title of the book is Red Balloons which I initially thought was a Swindon Town reference to your kit but some listeners may have thought it was a reference to German artist Nina's iconic track 99 Red Balloons. That was my second guess. So uh, I got it half right yeah. a little bit, maybe. There's a lyric in it which says, I think of you and let it go. So how did that shape your attitude of grief to the point where you wanted it to be this title? And I guess analogy to balloons as well. Yeah, it, it was um, 
again having, having you know, the book itself was a was a slow process and and then actually thinking of the title was an even slower one in, in that sense of that if i thought i was going to have a title for a book it was suggesting that there was going to be a book until i'd got about eighty thousand words it wasn't something that i was really contemplating too much and the title the title came about through the nina track for sure but then it was finding the definition when something about red red balloons resonated and i found the definition when i just went online and it uh, it said red balloons can signify how fragile love and happiness can be especially the ease with which it is burst so once i'd found that sentence i thought that's made for us that's made for us so red balloons from that moment on it was I want to talk about your dad now, because as the picture on the back of the book illustrates, this book isn't just about you and Patrick, but also you and your dad, your proudly Irish dad. Tell me about your relationship and how your love of Gaelic hurling, not Gaelic football, as I initially thought, <laughs> shaped your relationship, as well as Swindon Town as well. Yeah, we'd, we'd always been really, really close. As I said, as, a, as an only child, and he'd taken he, not just a football, but he coached our boys team all the way, all the way through from under sevens, under eights, right through to under 18s and, and for some of us into, into adulthood as well. So we, we'd had a very strong football bond, of course, which did stretch into, into other sports, into music and into, into working together for a period as well. So, so yeah, we had, a, we had a really, really close bond and I'm really privileged that I, I could have that relationship with, with my dad. And, and I, I know it was one that you know, I was lucky to have. And I know that lots of people are less fortunate with those relationships. So it's something for me was, yeah, really, really um, privileged would be the word that I would use mm. to describe our relationship. And just tell me about the man he was and, and some of your favourite memories or any ad libs or saying that he gave you or he gave your children that you hold with you today. I think with the ad libs or, or sayings, I think it's in the in the book in the early stages, but it wasn't one for for any of the you know, the, the modern diving or, or going, <laughs> going down a little bit too lightly. Or four, between, four, fucking two. Between, <laughs> you know, he would say uh, he'd always shout, "Get up, your mum's watching." If, if a player hit the deck a bit too a bit too readily, uh, so that that was one that I think that we would mock him for, but equally one that we fondly remember him for, and and you know have to dust down and bring out on occasion as well. Losing your son is unimaginable for most people. However, you also lost your dad just two weeks after Patrick died. How did you deal with that double whammy, essentially, of grief? Um, if I go back to one of the earlier answers, really about saying I'm not, I'm not sure. In the, the, yeah, that's a fine uh, answer, e- mate. E- equally, in people say you won't remember much. People also said, and I think this is a, this is almost true, is that you almost get some sort of protective bubble. Feels like it's surrounding you as well. So we were in a bubble, and then almost literally in a bubble because COVID came within a within a month or two as well. So that did change the way that we were all living as well. But um, what we would endeavour to do. You know, in the evening, whatever we'd been doing in the day, we would sit down and we would, you know, we would check in on each other um, around, you know, literally, have we had our fresh air and our exercise? Have we slept okay? What do we need to discuss as a family around the table? And one thing that we were really absolutely, we did every day was to say, you know, let's share something each that's that's been positive today. So one good thing, and it could have been the most basic thing in the world, or it, it could be something that we were a little bit proud of and that we felt was a step forward. So we did that every day. We did that every day as a family. And, and sometimes it was, a, it was extremely difficult to be able to do that, mm. but we did it. 
Uh, and I think that's one of the things that helped us get through. After your dad died, there's a point in the book where you try and imagine a younger version of him celebrating Swindon Town, winning the League Cup at Wembley, and you're desperate to hear him regale you with those memories. You say, I realise it's too late. It's acutely painful just when I need the details. Even as I nag dad to recall that Wembley winning team, desperate in his last days to keep him alert as his body was ravaged by the vicious mesothelioma. I wanted names, numbers, facts. Right now, I wanted context, shades, stories, humanity, memories, feelings. I wanted my dad. I cried again. I'm getting emotional just reading that part of the book. How hard was that to write? Oof, um, do you know what? The writing, bear with me with this, the writing was sometimes easier than the editing because when I'm writing, I'm in the moment. Yes, yes, there are elements of it are going to be quite tough and difficult and emotional and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, sometimes in the moment I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is, this is quite powerful, but I could do that. The tougher, the tougher bits were when I came to edit it and had to read it back and, and also trying to make something which was maybe more coherent and would make sense and other people would get something out of as well. So that was actually tougher. You mentioned your dad being a football coach for your kids and throughout the book, you also provide some really sad stories of the grief of many men who played in his football team and attending the funerals of all of them. Why did you decide to include these men? Was it about giving them a legacy as well? Absolutely. And I think there's four of that team. And we were under 15 county champions. That was our, you know, our badge of honour. Um, Dining out on that for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. It died by the early 50s. And yes, we drifted apart as we grew up and moved around the different things, of course, over adulthood. But equally, we were with some of those, the bonds that remained pretty strong. And, and you don't forget, you don't forget your, your teammates from that age of, you know, I think, whatever, you know, however old you are. So, so each of those were for different reasons. And they're all, all great shocks. And a couple of those lads I was, I was still pretty close to. And, and that was, it felt really, it felt really hard, because it's a reminder of my own mortality as much as anything. But Equally, I looked at Dad, I think, at the at the third of those funerals, and he was just bewildered. He didn't understand why he would be late 70s, and and at that stage, so we thought, fairly fit. And yet, these younger men, are, you know, he's attending the funerals of his, of his young players, of, of who he was very proud, obviously, uh, 35 years earlier. I want to talk about recovery now, and how you and your wife and your family try to recover from the grief. I know you can never truly overcome something, but how have you been able to get to a point where you can manage it as best as you can now? I think two parts of that. I think one is time and one is being relentless on some of those daily check-ins that we did right from the start. So whilst we're not quite so driven in that sense of, yeah, share something positive every day, I think that the way that we've tried to live since is to try to find purpose in the things that we care about and that we want to contribute to. That gives us the energy to, you're absolutely right in terms of the recovery. It's not a sense of recovery. I think it's a sense of it's, it's just a different journey that we're on. So we've, we've continued to do those things. We've, we've found, for each of us, we've, we've found different reasons or challenges or opportunities and we pursued them and we've not everything comes off does it but we've uh, I think we've been pretty good at encouraging each other to, to keep moving in, in the right way because we we need to you know not all of that is or has to be 
Patrick related or tribute to Patrick or charity related, it's okay to do things which are fun um, and different too. So that's what we try to do. Simon Thomas wrote a grief Bible, I call it, called Love Interrupted, which you may be aware of. And he wrote that time doesn't heal, but it does change your perception of grief. How has it changed yours, Liam? I think up until up until we'd lost Patrick and Dad, and and, and actually there were you know, as well as the two that are clearly central to the to the story. My aunt and my mum's sister died in the in the same period, and, and another couple of slightly slightly more distant relations. So, so we did have sort of five or five or six within two or three months. And, until that point, so I'd, I'd led a relatively charmed life without loss. And without grief so it was something that i certainly didn't understand and as i said from a mental health perspective it wasn't something that i've been challenged through either so time has helped an understanding and if i can start there will be absolutely basic in my answer freddie about understanding that there isn't a recovery you've said it and i'll just echo that that it's just learning to live with to understand that the life isn't going to be the same it wouldn't be the same anyway because things would move on and who knows what that would have brought anyway but it's learning to accommodate accommodate what's happened in, in the way that we plan and plot and shape our futures. So yeah, we can't change what's happened, but we can we can change and influence what's what's ahead of us. And I think it's trying to keep that keep that mindset really that however long each of us is here for, we can still contribute and and create and love and empower and share and, and all the positive things that go with uh, with those activities. Before we talk about how your relationship with your other children has changed and, and you've managed that as the grief has taken hold and you've managed it as the years have gone on, mate. Coming back to Swindon, after the ownership troubles that played the club several years ago, your brilliant promotion season from League Two is something you encapsulate with another repeated line, we've got our Swindon back. Was that almost a way of you saying to yourself that I'm trying to come back to life too after the grief? Uh, really, really interesting comment, isn't it? Because the two you said you can you can draw parallels between between those. I'd not thought of that, and I've not certainly not consciously understood that as part of the journey. But maybe you're onto something there. Maybe you're onto something in that, that there was a there was a parallel journey that the club was on at the time, and you know there was that period after after we got promoted then relegated in an absolutely miserable, abject fashion during COVID, which again was a sort of a relegation fit for a COVID season, if ever there was one. And then the club fell apart with no, you know, no, literally no owner, no manager, no kit man, no groundsman. The league was starting in, in two weeks and we got absolutely nobody. So it was a... It was, a, it was just Jack Payne, our old boy. It was, yeah. it was just him left. <laughs> uh, yeah, and bless him, I think he's stuck with, he's stuck with. So, so those good lad, days, Jack. I think Doing we had nine, nine professionals and he was one of those and, and, and they will be fondly, fondly remembered because it would have been a lot easier for them to go and find another club, but they stuck with it. And I think they'll hopefully be remembered in folklore for many years to come for what they did. When griefs like this happen, mate, the relationship between the parents and the surviving children is also really key because it can experience difficulties. You know, for example, if the parents are completely consumed by grief for one child, the other children might become jealous or they might feel they're not being paid attention to and that can have knock-on effects. So how did you ensure your tight family unit stayed tight and didn't drift apart or, God forbid, crumble in the wake of this? Um, 
I don't think we set out with a plan or a vision of sure. what we needed to do. I don't think there's anything as formal as that. I wouldn't pretend that everything's been easy because we've had mm. lots and lots of moments which have needed a, you know, a lot of soul searching and a lot of discussion and a lot of time to get through. But we're all different characters with, with slightly different interests as well. And I think we just, we just support each other through it. So I, I, there hasn't been anything... I think too deliberate or too planned in that we've we know where our boundaries are with each other we know how to to support each other and encourage each other and and we just do our best to to check in and I think between us we're probably not shy and equally saying where we're where somebody falls short on the mark or on one of those elements and we'll we'll do whatever we can to put things right so so nothing too formal or planned in that sense but it's just been time and and just Mm. been I think being consistent as much as anything with with how we relate to each other and given the events mate how conscious or subconscious were you not to let it change your parenting style like not to become a helicopter parent for your other two children and worry about when they you know didn't text you after a couple of hours or something on a night out you know things like that how did you catch yourself maybe before you started doing that (sighs) um it's a really it's a hard one isn't it it's a really uh it's a really sensitive question, that, really, mm. uh, because, yeah, by nature, in the way that you feel as a parent, it's, it's changed. It's changed in that instant. Do they reassure you more? Like, do they check in a bit more and just to give you a bit of peace of mind sometimes? Um, not massively, I don't okay. think. I don't, I'm being, I'm being, being not yet, not yet. <laughs> um, so, so, so I think... Uh, I think we're probably equally conscious not to overcheck in, or, or yeah, if somebody has gone on a night out and, and not checked in, and it's late at night. What they don't want is them to have a parent messaging, texting, shouting. So maybe, maybe if there's anything deliberate, it's to, to be hands off in that sense. Clearly, we're here if if, if needed uh, and support, and we'd we would jump uh, you know jump in the car to pick up from wherever and, and do all those great parenting things that most would do anyway but it's just trying not to I suppose trying not to overshare or overburden and or overcheck in in any direction between the, the group of us. Before we have our final group of reflection questions mate in the final page of the book and people can go and read the full book because it covers so much more than what we've discovered in this podcast you say Every day since Patrick died is a day further from the connection we had and every day his old friends are a day further into their own journeys without him. The idea that who he was gets loosened, lost or forgotten is unbearable for me. So how do you keep his memory alive in a positive way but not be sucked back into the madness of grief? Because it's a very difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Yeah, and I think first the answer for me is talking about him. So we're both as a family, which we maybe come back to, but equally, one thing that others might say or maybe don't say is that I would I didn't want to mention Patrick because then that'll make you feel sad again or make you feel, you know make you miserable. But actually, he's within each of us is every second of every day. So it's not a case of you know if I'm down the shops and I bump into somebody at Sainsbury's and and, and if they don't mention. Patrick, then I'm not thinking about him because he's there. So yes, and this doesn't just go for us. This just go for I think grief is a is a much wider point. But you know, say the name. You know, say the name is a really important thing for however well you know somebody or don't know somebody. Then talk about those that they've lost because you know that they're there in their hearts, in our hearts. And then I really, really do appreciate that. And 
just last week somebody did stop me in Sainsbury's and do exactly the same. So there are <laughs> lots and lots of positives. But that for me, going back to the the whole point about Nick at the start of the book is it's that remembering point. And as a parent, I do like it when, when people come in and they'll they'll remind me or they say something that was funny or, you know, just any memories that they do have that is that is important to me. So that keeps his memory alive in the way that I'm describing there in that on that last page. And equally for us, when something happens around the house, a song comes on, there are lots of points, and I think at that point it is it's important to acknowledge it that if he was here he'd be thinking this or he, this is what he'd be saying. So so yeah, we I think we we strike a I think a fairly healthy line at this point of positively remembering without getting sucked in, as you said, to some of the some of the just the overwhelming sadness that, that can be, you know, can be an issue as well. And I recognise for some it's a it's a difficult uh, a difficult can be a very difficult place to get out of. You mentioned there about saying their name. So as we reflect now, what is the one abiding message you would want my listeners and the readers of the book to take away with them, Liam? I think it's that checking in point, whether it is loss or grief related, or equally if we we are live in the present. So, like you said, you know you you've got a strong family footballing relationship yourself, which you appreciate. So say it, you know, say it and share it with those that you go with. But equally, take the time yourself to actually appreciate and, and savor it. So whether that's yourself as a reader, Freddie, or, or even for me, for the positive things that are going on in, in my life still. So, you know, I can't be consumed by what's happened, but I, I can continue to live in the moment. I'm probably less inclined to plan too much further ahead is probably where I am. But yeah, as a one message, one thought, it would be to, yeah, save what you've got and, and tell people, tell people along the way. And if Patrick or your dad were listening to this podcast, Liam, what do you think you would say to them and what do you think they would say to you? Um, I would say thank you. Thank you for everything that you've given. Um, in my dad's case, it was 79 years. In Patrick's case, it was 15. But they've in very different but equally incredibly similar ways. And the words that were spoken at their funerals and memorial services were, were incredibly similar, actually. They've given me so much to not just remember, but it, I think it's, it's, it's so much to feel as well. And it's that strength of emotion, from a, again, from a positive perspective, is it's something that I absolutely cherish and, and you know, I'll, I will love for, you know, for, forevermore. So it's a, it's a thank you to them. What they would say to me, um, uh, my dad would would say something very quietly, but he'd let me know that he'd got my back. So there'd be no fuss, but he would be absolutely supportive. Patrick would say something like, you said too many ums and ahs in that interview. (laughs) I'll take most of them out, mate, don't worry. (laughs) And you used the wrong examples and... Yeah, you came across like a bit of a Muppet dad. Um, <laughs> but in that sense, I know he would have actually listened in and he would have, in his own way, he would have been quietly proud as well. He would let me know about all the things which, which I stumbled on or did not work too well, Freddie, for sure. And as a final question, mate, what has this mental health journey and writing the book taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that Liam who was in the depths of his initial grief for his son and his dad the Liam who was saying we've got our Swindon back or the Liam who was thinking about writing the book but wasn't too sure what would you say to him knowing what you do now 
That's a great question, isn't it? It's a really good question, and it's, it's equally it's a tough it's a tough one to answer. But I, I, I think I think I'd answer it in the in the realms of resilience and consistency. So change happens slowly, and again, recovery is the wrong word, but the way that we move on is slow. If you do the same things consistently, then you can make the sort of progress that you need to do. And if, if using the analogy of writing the book, if you write a page a day, then if you do that for, for a year or a year and a half, then you've got a book at the end of it, haven't you? You don't have to do too much more than that. So it's, it's just continue to continue to walk in the, in the direction that you want to head in. And you'll, you know, hopefully you end up in a place further down the line towards where you want to be a year and a half in the future. So I, I think resilience and consistency would be the, would be the themes that I'd pick out on, on there. Liam, it's been an absolute privilege of my life to interview you about your brilliant book thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me mate thank you freddie it's been a pleasure thank you well that's all we've got time for in this episode of the just checking in podcast i want to say a massive thank you to liam for being my special guest for letting me check in with him and sharing his story patrick's story and his dad's for you the listeners Hug your loved ones, call your dad, call your son and make every moment count. I'll put some links to where you can buy a copy of Red Balloons in the show notes as despite everything we've discussed, it will never do complete justice to the brilliance of the book. So I'd urge you to buy a copy for yourself. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.